0: What's up y'all wanna welcome you back to the HuntStand Podcast, season two, and this is your host, Will Cooper. The HuntStand Podcast is your weekly source for insightful conversations with veteran hunters, dedicated outdoor enthusiasts, and top industry personnel. I'm gonna have guests on here who are true experts in their field, diving into the captivating world of our industry and in the great outdoors. With each episode, you, the listener, will receive invaluable knowledge, tips, and guidance on how to enhance your skills in the wild and in life. Tune in to be entertained, informed, and driven to reach new heights. The HuntStand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. The HuntStand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and their lineup of Model 2020 Waypoint Rifles. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. It's never been easier to go wireless with the Command Pro app. Capture high quality photos and videos of all the action wherever you hunt with Stealth Cam's advanced cameras and data plans tailored to your needs. So make sure to check out their website today, stealthcam.com. Hunt Stand Podcast Season 2. Buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Let's go. Well, brother, are you ready to get this thing rolling? Yeah, go for it. All right, man. Well,. First and foremost, Jeremiah, I just want to welcome you to the Hunt Stand Podcast, and thank you for taking the time to talk deer and deer hunting with me this morning.
1: Oh, anytime, man! Anytime I can talk about deer, I'm I'm in. So
0: yeah, I, I can't complain. It's not a bad job to have. So, man, what I like to do, you know, we're gonna talk here in a little bit. I'm getting you on this podcast because uh, I've been getting asked by quite a few people about. How to process deer, if there's a better way to do it, and just kind of maybe go down a rabbit hole with it. But before we get to that, I like for each of my guests to give the listeners kind of that what I call the thirty foot tree stand view of you know, who you are, your brand, how you've gotten to where you are in life, and anything else you want us to know about you, man. So
1: give us a skinny on you, brother. Yeah, well, tree stands are really hard in Southern California where I'm from because yeah, Texas too. <laughs> You're not, yeah. Well, <laughs> Texas, it's like where are you going to put it uh, in that cactus? Yeah. Uh, but you know, we're not allowed to leave stuff on public land, so you put one up and you got to take it down. Mm-hmm. The day you're there. So. Uh, but yeah, born and raised in Southern California, that that typical Southern California lifestyle. A lot of a lot on the water. Uh, grew up bird hunting primarily. That's what we do in Southern California. Is we are flies that dies kind of culture down here for the hunting culture. Otherwise, you know. Don't we talk about hunting because we're in Southern California? Yeah, <laughs> uh, but you know we've got some of the best and diverse um, waterfowling. We're in the Pacific Flyway at the very end. Half our ducks don't even make it down to Mexico because our weather is perfect, so they they sit here. So the end of the season this year was insane. Um, we've got three different types of quail. We got three different types of dove, uh, chucker, pheasant, you name it. So wow, that was my life, born and raised, was on the water fishing in the in the ocean or chasing birds with a shotgun. And uh, kind of how my hunting life progressed is in 2007, 2008, uh, I developed an allergic reaction to bovine fats. So for those of you who don't know what bovine is, that's cows uh, and domesticated uh, bison. And yeah, so my body cannot digest um, domestic cattle or bison. That's kind of you know I can go into it. it will take us seventeen different podcasts to talk about how, why, where, when, and what. But pretty much, I'm allergic to beef. Uh, beef can't. If I eat too much of it, it can literally kill me. And uh, so that just like I said, that started. I was an Irish kid born and raised on meat and potatoes. And uh, so that started and kind of thrust me more into the big game world because I wanted to subsidize red meat. Realized that. Uh, Know the wild aspect of red meat it didn't have the enzymes that my body's allergic to. Mm-hmm. That you domesticated cattle, and so taught myself. Literally, um, got myself my first antelope tag. You know, I'm gonna go for it. Go for it. Let's go chase the antelope in Wyoming. And uh, got my tag. Didn't know what I was doing. Got you know went and got a cheap thirty out six. At the time, it was a Thompson Center, cheapest one. I think it was $129 back in 2007, now they're top of the line, you know, it's a Smith- <laughs> yeah, sister company but I, I walked in, literally walked in California, we got a 10 day waiting period I waited 10 days, went to Walmart bought a cheap Bushnell scope because again, mm-hmm. you, know, you ask me about shotguns, I'll tell you, every, ins and outs of shotguns, I've got Benalis, I've got, but when it comes to rifles, I was like, a rifle's a rifle, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, went out to Wyoming spent seven days with a buddy who didn't know what we, what we were doing either uh, chase these antelope and finally build our tags and took it to a processor because we didn't know what we were doing. Like I literally, I sat in the middle of the field with a Swiss army knife from when I was 13. You know, the one that has like the toothpick and the tweezers and the, you know, is the, it's the size of your arm. Yeah. It sat there. I don't think it's ever been sharpened. Got it when I was 13 for Christmas and tried to gut and skin this animal. And I was like, what, this is stupid. Why do, why do people like this crap? Uh, then I got the meat home, and I hated it. I had no idea how to cook it, no idea of flavor profile. And back in 2008, really the only people that were doing the wild game cooking was you know, Hank Shaw, Steve Rinella, meat eater, just, just started out doing their stuff. There wasn't many people when you wanted to look for wild game. And you typed it in on the internet, and it was like, oh, wrap it in bacon. Throw, throw stuff it in jalapeno. Slow you know, cook it. Slow cook it, overcook it, make it into chili. I was like, this is this is crap. Well, I had worked in the I've been working in the restaurant industry since I was 17. Mm -hmm. Uh, Worked all the way up, became a restaurant, uh, you know, GM, AGM. Then got into corporate development training, writing training programs. You know, look at my body, you can totally tell I was one of those corporate execs in (laughs) high-end restaurants, and hated it. Hated my life. Hated working 17, 18-hour shifts. Um, But I had this meet. I had this you know, grew up with, if you shoot it, you eat it mentality that my dad put it. Yeah. I remember we shot a crow with a pellet gun in our backyard. My dad made us eat it. Um, How'd that taste? You know, we live in this. It, that's why they say, you know, go eat crow. Um, <laughs> tasted like what they smell like. And so if you ever smelt a crow, that's what it tastes like. Oof. And, and we're, you know, and we're in orange County. I mean, we're in the city. It's not like it's a crow out there eating crops. This crow's out there eating garbage and, you know, neighbors dog food. And so I had this just got to make it, you got to make it taste good. So I worked on it, worked on it and used kind of my culinary background in the restaurant. Hey, okay, how do you pair something? You know, we have sommeliers in the restaurant who are pairing wines to different flavors. So I started talking to sommeliers like when you're looking at a flavor profile, how do you, how do you gauge this? You know, cause I have this antelope, which tastes like sucking on a sage leaf. How do I, how do I marry that and not try to mask the flavor, but enhance it to a beautiful elegant flavor yeah uh, and so i got like the it's like the cook's bible but it's like all about seasonings and pairings, and, and it's like this thick and it literally gives you cumin and everything that would pair well with cumin and how it flavor pro it's brilliant it's genius that's interesting so i started looking at sage and realizing that ginger soy garlic um kind of those asian inspired flavors pair really really well with sage And so I just started experimenting with creating my own teriyaki sauces, my own type Mongolian sauces. This antelope, all of a sudden, something that my family hated, me, my wife, and my what, three-year-old at the time, Mm. hated it. And now we're sitting there and we want to keep eating more of it and more of it and more of it. But I had only shot one, right? And so within like a month, I had no meat left. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to wait till October 1st to go shoot another antelope. So that went on three years of me just going to Wyoming at the time I could get four tags for does mm-hmm. and the doe tags were $38 a tag Dang. And, th- and that includes your license. So I'd go spend 400 bucks on a whole trip to Wyoming, shoot four antelope in four days and became really, really good at it um, on public land. And it's just Sweet. like, you just, you know, once you understand the process, once you understand how to hunt it, it was like, all oh, right, this is easy. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, so it kind of just progressed from there. And next thing you know, companies are calling me, asking me to – because I was just posting on, like, on Instagram, like, bullfrog. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. And companies are reaching out saying, hey, can we share your recipe? Hey, can we put your recipe in our magazine? Hey, and I'm like, just like teriyaki antelope skewers. Nothing, and if you go you go back and look at those pictures I took back then, I don't know why anyone in the world started – <laughs> I don't know how I have 70,000 followers almost. If you go back and look at that first food picture that I posted, dude, and, you got to uh, start somewhere, man. Oh, it, it's just, it's funny because you're, you know, you always hear those stories and you never think you're going to be one of those stories. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell where it just kind of took off and exploded so much so that I was doing more hunting all over the whole country than I was like, I was using all my vacation time. And I was like, man, I should really quit my job. But when you're in a corporate restaurant making six figures, it's really hard to walk away and just, yeah. Um, and it was one of those mentalities where it's just, I want to, no, I want to, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm, you know, I go to church, God-fearing man. Mm-hmm. Same here. And, and we were sitting in church and our pastor at the time, who's since retired, was preaching uh, that Sunday. This is a Sunday that I was like contemplating what I should do with my life at the age of 30 or what, 35. I'm like, man, you know, I'm looking at all these people in the restaurant. They're all having heart attacks. They're all getting divorces. They're all, cause they're never home. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go down that road. Yeah. And, uh, so we're sitting in church. The pastor was like, you know, talking about cannonballing. You have to cannonball in life. He goes, everyone always says, you know, dive into something. He goes, but when you dive into a pool, the only person that you impact or effect is yourself because your goal is to not make a splash your goal is to go in perfectly in no one can even hear it He goes, i think what in life we need to be not afraid to cannonball He goes, because because when you cannonball into the pool you impact everyone in the pool and a lot of people outside the pool if your splash is good enough he goes and everyone turns around and, ev- and everyone looks at the person that jumps into the pool and i was sitting there going wow that was brilliant like i've never heard something put in the term of the cannonballing into life no i mean i i see your face right now you're you're looking at it going wow that's that's deep
0: it is and, man like it just it basically in a nutshell it's you just got to take a risk right
1: yeah you just got to go for it right and mm-hmm. and who who cares and he was like when you cannonball into a pool your your impact of your waves goes all the way to the end of the pool and comes all the way back and comes back to you so you'll feel the effects of your cannonball way after everyone else feels the effects of your cannonball mm-hmm. He goes, but you it's a cannonball, you gotta grab, you gotta go. If you don't, you're gonna belly flop, you're gonna back flop, you're gonna side flop, you gotta commit, you gotta go for it. And you know, our church is three thousand plus members, big church. And afterward the pastor comes up and goes, Jeremiah, that, that sermon was all for you. I have no idea, but I was praying last night. That sermon was for you. I was like, Thanks, Bruce. what am I supposed to do with that? You know, he's like, I have no idea. Just I was praying last night and you know, I gotta come tell you. So I was talking to my wife and I was like, Man, I don't just telling me to quit my job. Am I supposed to like just go for it? And she's like, well, whatever you want, I'll support you. Well, that Thursday night we had youth group, and I was a volunteer at youth group, and we were playing a game, and I tore my calf muscle, class four tear in my calf muscle. Holy cow. It, it went all the way up into my knee. Surgeries the whole nine yards. Jeez, so I was, of, I, was, dude. I was out of I was out of work for six months. <sighs> and during those six months, I really just focused on myself and Building a brand. I was like, okay, I got to think of a name from field to plate. I want to take it from field to plate. A concept. Hey, I want to teach people so they don't have to struggle like I did in the very beginning with a pocket knife. I want to get better. I want to learn how to butcher. I want to learn how to, I don't want to take it to a processor. I want to, from A to Z, it needs to be me. Yeah. And I just focused on that. And for six months, it was amazing. Then I had, you know, it came the day to go back to work. And my wife goes, listen, you have never been this happy. You know, you've never been this passionate. You've never been. You're not grumpy. You're not mean. You're not angry. You're not coming home at three (laughs) o'clock in the morning. Turning, which for your wife to tell you something is is huge, right? Big time. And I go, well, I think I need to quit my job. I said, but we can't. You know, there's no money. There's no money coming in. She goes, well, we have enough saved up for two years. So give yourself two years. Do as much and as you know as you can in those two years, and we'll, we'll make it work. I mean, how many wives tell you pe- tell their dudes to to walk away from a crap ton of money to go be happy?
0: Not a lot, man. Not a lot. That's a special woman right there.
1: You know, and, and her her parents and my parents were super supportive. They're like, hey, it's better to be poor when your kids are young and they don't know any better mm-hmm. And you're eating macaroni and cheese every single night and dollar you know, and and dollar chicken nuggets than to do it when they're in high school and they're gonna resent you because all their friends have, you know, are going out and you're sitting there eating macaroni and cheese still. And so I literally, I walked into I walked into work and I said, Hey, I quit. They were like, how much money do you want? Like you've been gone for six months and we're falling. The restaurant's falling. I was like, done. They're like, well, no, like what can we give you to keep you here? And I was like, absolutely nothing. There's, there's no amount of money that you can give me. There's no store you can give me. There's no whatever. I'm done. And, uh, turned around and walked out of the restaurant. And that was July 16th. Um, Seven years ago, six years ago, six years ago, July 16th and haven't looked back and I haven't. And I'm now making as much, you know, I'm, I'm making not as much money as I made in the restaurant, but right there at it. Um, and I am stay at home dad who hunts and fishes and cooks for a living and teach classes on new people, how to go out and hunt. And, you know, from thinking six years ago when I quit my job to I've now taken four hundred Brand new hunters, adult hunters, out on their first hunts. I've done. I have three more deer, and I'll processed four hundred deer myself that I've shot in six years. Like, who can say that, and who can do it, and who can be passionate about it? And so that's kind of me, in a nutshell, how it started, and it just kind of exploded and just cannonballing into life, and and giving it, and you know, now it's one of the coolest things. And even if social media went away, and you know, life went away, and whatever then I'm still going to be doing this and I'm still going to have fun at it. And I I, I can't imagine ever going back to like a day job.
0: Dude, hearing your story is, uh, I think it should, I think it's inspiring for a lot of people out there that might be going through similar struggle of what you did when you were working that job. But what I was, what I'm getting at is hearing you say these things is kind of something that I have followed myself as a mantra pretty much since I've got into the working force is I would rather have a job doing something. I love making less money than having a super high paying job, hating it and hating life. Oh, amen. I mean, that's, I think a lot of people fall, fall into that trap that they, they, they look at the money and they can't get away from the money, man. And, and uh, I think luckily though, you were able to,
1: and look at you now, man. Well, that's the deal is, I mean, I grew up poor. You know, and mm-hmm. I think the deal is a lot of people are so scared to not have what the Joneses have. You know, yes. to not not have what the neighbors have. I mean, so much so like people, you know, are a new phone comes out, they get the new phone. Their phone is still perfectly fine, but mm-hmm. they have to, if it doesn't have those three little camera holes on the back, then they know that you're poor. And it's you know, and the way that media is and the way that life is, it's everything is front and center. Yep. You know, I don't know how old you are. 31, uh, 31. 30, so you're, you know, you're, you're nine years younger than I am, eight years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but there's this mindset when I grew up, you know, we didn't have, like I was telling my daughters, like, we didn't have cell phones.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, internet had just came out and it was dial up and you, you couldn't get on because your mom was waiting for a call from your aunt, you know, and you couldn't keep the phone line on. Like we had to sit in the, in the family room and talk to people because that's the only phone in the house was in the family room, <laughs> that's right? That's what we had to do. And you know we had to watch whatever mom and dad watched because there was one TV in the house and it was a clicker, and and there was like seventeen channels. Oh yeah. But I'm like, this is the and now it's the kids have everything at their freaking fingertips. Mm-hmm. No one, no one looks at what an old timer is saying anymore. And so, in in our household, we still sit around and have dinner at the dinner table. And her friends think it's so weird that we sit down and have dinner at the dinner table. What? Think about you know. No one, everyone sits down and watches TV and they'll eat around the, you know, the, you know, no one sits down at a dinner table anymore. Or they're, they're, they, or they fill their lives with so much stuff, mm-hmm. right? There's so much noise in this world that no one takes the time to, to stop. And even when, like we were talking about deer processing, this is the whole episode. Is I laugh at hunters who say they don't have the time to process their own deer. They have the time to watch 17 hours of YouTube videos of guys. Exactly guys hunting and fishing and they have they and they go sit in their you know in their tree stand reading a book waiting for that buck to walk by and they can go out and all summer long they're going to tend to those you know those alfalfa fields and those bean sprouts because those deer are going to come in there or you know if you in Texas, hey i gotta go fill my feeders and check my trail cameras i gotta go make sure that there's a shooting lane i gotta go set up bow blinds i gotta go they have so much stuff but when it comes to the process of finishing it out everyone's like ah, it's easier just to take it to a processor I bet I guarantee you if someone could well I I, I know I, I taught a class with a bunch of rich guys and they got so drunk at night that in the morning I went to wake them up, and like, hey, come on, we got deer, we got stands, we got we gotta go get them. One of the guys said, I'll pay you ten thousand dollars if you go shoot me a big buck so I can take a picture with it. Oh. I took I took his ten thousand dollars and went and shot him a monster buck. Heck yeah. <laughs> uh, back and he literally put on his camouflage, took a picture with it, and I was like, This is the world we live in. That's people. People are more. He he wanted the big buck for the wall. When people walked into his office, you know, he shot this two hundred. Oh, I shot this two hundred ten inch deer um, uh, that he could put up on the wall. And you know, he tells the stories and he posts all. Look at this deer I shot this morning. And I was like, whatever, right? But that's the world we live in. If if people could do it for us and we could still get the glory for it, mm. we're gonna, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's 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 pretty insane, and you know. I, I I'll have to guilt. I'll have to admit. Uh, about the only thing I take to a processor is to have dried sausage made because um, I haven't had the means to make it myself yet. I do all my grind, all my grinds, and I you know I cut up all my meat and get all the the silver skin everything off it. But I do take it to have some really good dried sausage made here in Texas. A good friend of ours does it like like salami style sausage no like the the rings of sausage like it's uh it's like a ring of sausage that what we call fresh sausage here in central texas and then the guy that uh makes it for us he's got a room uh probably about as big as my office here that uh it's just a giant smoke room that you can go in there and it's just all these rings and he does this out of his backyard and he uh he'll just smoke it and then you've got that and it's uh it's not like salami um
1: is it like the kind you get when you go to like all the like, uh, like Salt Lake and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, it's, it's like that, but it's dried. It's dried and aged. Uh, like he'll hang it and smoke it in there for like a week and it dries out and then you just slice it up or I'll just, you know, um, I'll take the lining off of it and I'll just sit there and eat a, you know, half a stick or quarter of a
1: stick for lunch.
0: It's, oh, nice. It's amazing.
1: See, but like those specials, like the specialty type stuff that you don't have the means to do. Mm hmm find those small local guys who are doing it yeah and go do it like and and i there's nothing wrong with that there's something no, like one of my buddies there's a little local butcher in Texas mm-hmm. that make like a cherry chipotle um, summer sausage type thing that he <sighs> will. right yeah they won't it's a family recipe they won't tell you the secret they won't tell you it mm-hmm. you know so I'll walk in and take 40 pounds of ground meat and the guy will make him the sausages and I'm like that sort of thing Hundred percent go for it. But when yeah. it comes to wasting hundred fifty dollars for someone to cut a steak for you or grind the meat, that's where it's like that's where I look at it. But if there's a specialty that you physically can't do mm-hmm. or don't do or don't don't have the time to do, like like no one has a dry room to sit there and you, sit there and hang a salami for six weeks in the proper temperature to make salami, but guys like salami. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not talking about like summer, like this is a dried hard salami that, you know, you can keep out on your counter for months and years. Go for it. Find find a local guy who's doing it and doing it well. Pay that guy for for his services, but don't pay the dude at the butcher who has 5,000 deer already hanging and he's just throwing your meat into a nasty grinder with everybody else.
0: <laughs> and you don't know if you're getting your deer back.
1: Guarantee you're not getting your deer back. Yeah. We, did a step, we did a thing, we shot an antelope in Wyoming and we were talking to my buddy about this and we're like, Hey, this processor, this guy isn't giving us back proper meat
0: mm-hmm.
1: or he was telling us. And I was like, well, let's do a thing. So we literally took an antelope. We took a sawzall, cut it from, from tip to tail in, in half. And we walked into the, the processor and said, okay, here's half an antelope. This is what I want from it. I'm going to take the other half and I'm going to process it. We're going to, first of all, we're going to compare and contrast how, how much we get, what cuts we get. It's the same exact animal, right? Same in the half. Yeah. It's going to be hundred pounds on this side and hundred pounds on this side. If we do it properly, which is like, okay, yeah. Well, what he didn't know is I took a knife and I put X's in every single one of the main cuts. So in the bottom round, top round back straps, I did little, just a little X right where the joints are. So I know where they are. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, so he gives us back our meat. I open up the bottom. I told him not to freeze it. Don't freeze it. I want it back unfrozen. So we get back the, 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 the sirloin. I open it up and I look at him like this isn't mine. Go go get mine. He's like, Yeah, it is, it's yours. I guarantee you. I was like, No, it's not, because I put an X about this big on the top of mine. Go go find my meat. I open up the backstrap, like, well, this isn't mine, because where's the X and this? And he's like, Uh uh, well, we wage your deer and this is the amount of deer you get back.
0: Oh.
1: And I said, Well, I'm not gonna pay you and you can keep that that half the antelope, that's yours. Because I don't know who's that is. I don't know how long it sat in the back of the truck. I don't know. how An antelope breaks down like the moment it starts. The moment you shoot an antelope, its hair starts falling out. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like you literally grab the antelope and you start pulling out hair and make it the perfect leather if you wanted to. The moment it starts dying, it starts to to decay. That's just how it is. And so if you don't get that animal gutted and cold fast, the meat itself starts to decay. So people, so so people say, "Oh, I hate antelope." It's because you don't process it well. You don't understand. I can't we will drive into freaking Buffalo in Wyoming and it's seventy five degrees outside and there's antelope just sitting in the back of trucks while guys are in eating lunch. God.
0: <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> what are you hey, doing?
1: You can eat that antelope, but like, oh yeah, we'll take your processor over in Laramie, which is another hour away. And I'm like, Well, it's gonna go bad. No, it'll be fine. Antelope meat sucks anyway. Well, you want you wonder why it sucks? What? Sitting in the back of your pickup truck in seventy five degree weather without even a freaking ice bag in its chest. <clears throat>
0: Yeah. That's, that's frustrating. That is frustrating. Jeez. Well, man, let's, let's talk about deer breaking down deer, man. Like I said, it's, it's kind of one of those questions that I've been getting asked. Uh, people have actually requested that I do a podcast on this. And so, you know, let's just get into it. You know, I I really want to dive into the specifics i mean obviously we don't have a deer right in front of us so we can't people we can't walk people through this um but what would you say just to to start out you know processing deer um you know let's let's talk about tools and you know maybe some safety precautions or like things that you're thinking in your mind so that you don't have that deer that's or that pronghorn that's in back of the truck 75 degrees and the meat's gonna taste like crap like how What's your process look like? Like, where do you start?
1: Yeah, I think for me, uh, first thing start. You gotta, gotta have a good knife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm not. Don't come at me, people. Um, <laughs> your 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 grandpa's buck knife that you got when you were 13 isn't a good knife. No. Um, it's awesome. It's beautiful. It's great to have, but it's not a good knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Havilon blades, the you know, all the changeable blades, those are. Good knives, they're not great knives. Mm. Um, they dull quickly. The blade itself is is very very short. You want you want a longer blade for a better cut. Yeah. There's a knife. Uh, Victor Knox is coming out with it, but it's a, it's been around since the freaking 1300s. Um, it kind of faded out in existence and it's starting to come back. I'm one of the big advocates on bringing it back. It's a, it's called the tripe knife or a uh, bullet tip knife. It was used by the French. Um, when they were, like sheep farmers. Really, it's a reverse curve blade that has almost look, looks like a nine millimeter bullet on top. It's a it's a dull top, and it's a reverse curve. So you think about most times, the blade itself is curved like a like a smiley face. Yeah, and your sharp parts on the bottom of the smiley face, mm-hmm. right? This is curved like a smiley face, but the sharp parts on the top, of the blade, the top of the smile. Um, really? And what you can actually do is you can actually go in and gut your animals. With this without any fear of puncturing anything that, that's in there because there's no sharp tip yeah and the, and the way the curvature works um, you can literally take it right where the groin is you don't even have to make an decision you can shove pop it in and what you do is you kind of just grab it and pull it towards you it'll mm-hmm. cut all the ribs of a deer an antelope I've got tons of videos videos on it um, and it's a phenomenal knife that is my go-to you know that's the only knife so much so that I have elk hunter buddies who have now stolen all of mine and they'll do it when they process elk forgot gu- like as guides and people are, like blown away when they pull out this knife they're like oh no you got an edge sit there and they'll go through it goes through everything you can think of mm-hmm. and it takes it takes an edge real nice um and then getting yourself a good set of butcher knives um and you don't have to spend a lot of money victor Knox again not one of my sponsors but i believe in products that are good yeah uh, you don't have to go spend 400 dollars from a company to get a custom blade You can go buy they've got you know boning knives for like 30 bucks that stay sharp and can literally take an edge with with one ceramic swipe on your ceramic stick sweet Uh, i primarily like to use an eight to nine inch scimitar style knife which is a curved blade um and i teach it in all my classes people at first they grab this knife like this is way too big then afterward they're like i can never go back to a four or five inch blade Mm -hmm. ever if you go look at any any meat butcher or processor, they're all we're all using long blades because long blades mean clean cuts, mm-hmm. less work. You know, you're you're sitting there with a havalon poking at this thing, cutting, making a million little slices, where I can take it and just go whoosh, straight down. I posted a video on my Instagram of me deboning a neck with um, like an eight-inch scimitar knife. People are like that looked too easy, because like, it is, like it doesn't. You don't have to struggle, and a, a sharp knife is not going to make it so it's hard. Um, I think the reason people get deterred is cause they're trying to do it with a dull knife. Yeah. And I'll sit at, I'll sit at deer camps at other people's ranches and watch these guys come in and they pull out this buck knife that they just cut off, you know, an apple with, <laughs> they sit, start hacking at the skin of this animal. The, and I'm like, they're like, I, I don't get it. I'm like, get what? Well, you just, you just knocked out five deer and I'm still on my one. I'm like, well, cause your blade sucks. And so I think the very number one thing is getting that sharp blade and loving it, you know? Mm hmm. A dull blade is more dangerous than a sharp knife. Absolutely. That's, and that goes back to my days in the restaurant. Um, you know, if I see a cook sit there struggling to cut something, it's more dangerous with you trying to trying to cut than allowing the knife to do its job by cutting. So that's that's the number one thing is getting, getting a good set of, of knives um, and getting a little roll. I mean, you can get a little roll and keep it in your truck, keep it in your backpack. That doesn't weigh that much with two or three knives in it um, and open that up and keep them clean, keep them sharp. Um, versus, you know, that little Havalon with 13 blades you're going through again, no offense to Havalon. I love them. I got them. Um, but the more and more I learn, the more I grow Mm. and I start, start talking and start looking at actual butchers. I'm like, why are we as hunters not treating ourselves as actual butchers? Why are we still doing it the way that grandpa did it? That's so true. We are not afraid to use the newest bow and arrow. We're not afraid to wear the newest camo. We're not afraid to go get the biggest and baddest rifle and scope. Yep. We're, not, we're not afraid to use killer new rangefinders and 7mm PRC rounds that now can shoot 2,000 yards. We're not afraid of that. But when it comes to our knives, people... Oh, I can't... I'm not going
0: to spend $300 on a knife. Or,
1: right. or oh, this is my grandpa's This is how my grandpa did it. Well, yeah, and your grandpa also... You know, shot one deer a year and that's what they lived off of, Mm -hmm. which is fine. Go for it. But your grandpa would, would also tell you that if he had the opportunity to use a bigger, better knife, guarantee you, he would have,
0: you know, I kind of want to pause for a second before we get into the actual, like talk of how you break down a deer, uh, you know, just we're, we're talking about some of the mistakes that we as hunters have made, you know, like with grandpa's buck knife, not having sharp knives, What are some other uh, mistakes you see that hunters make either when they're processing or, you know, just whenever they're going through it?
1: Uh, One thing that I hear, like things I hear a lot, like don't get hair on the meat. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is a, that's an old wise tale. Uh, (laughs) And and it just is. And people are like, oh my gosh, you did that. You're getting hair on the meat. Wipe it off. Um, Rinse it off. Wipe it off. One time a one time a year that that animal is going to go into a rut Mm -hmm. that rut there's a little you know a little patch of hair on the back of the legs that they're going to piss on okay when we're cutting that animal anyway we're leaving that patch of hair because that's right where the where the achilles tendon is we're going above that or we're going below that anyway so we're not even not even impacting that at at all so if you get a little bit of hair on the meat who cares you know and all people come to my class are sitting there picking off i go at the end of the class, when we're done, your meat's going to be clean. Like just do it. I think another thing that they, that they get caught up in is everything is silver skin, <laughs> right? <clears throat> if it's shiny, it's silver skin. Yes. No, that's a lie. So I'll see people post pictures of a sirloin roast or a top round or a bottom round and just trim down to this little itty bitty thing. Mm-hmm. Cause all the silver skin. In my classes I'll teach. If you take your knife and run it across, um, if you run it across very lightly and it cuts, it ain't silver skin. It'll break away when it's cooking. If you take your knife and you run across the top of it and it doesn't cut, then we need to cut it off because that's silver skin. Yeah. There's only like four there's only like four places where you're actually going to find the silver skin on a deer anyway. You're going to find it, you know, on the back strap on the top part, which yep. we all know when you get inside of your um, your top and bottom round. And where it's going to be sitting in there because that's where the, it's rubbing. There's a strip on your, on your bottom round that, that's sitting there. Uh, and there's one that's in the shoulder. The rest of it, you're, it's not silver skin, mm-hmm. right? It's just connective tissue. It's sinew. It's stuff that's going to break down as it cooks. You can trim it off if you don't want to. I mean, yeah. you know, if you don't want to, but don't have to be afraid of it. Um, you know, oh, I can't chew it. No, trust me. And that's, I think, some of the biggest things is I watch people trim off, trim off, trim off, trim off, trim off, you know, and also don't wash your meat until you're ready to eat it. Um, if Um How many times have you, you process your own deer? Yeah. You, you get hair on it, You rinse off the hair. What happens to the outside of that meat?
0: It starts to get a little gray sometimes.
1: Gray or it gets slimy. Yeah. It gets red. Okay. So what happens is the body itself, um, How um, how animals work, how deer work, how we work, right? Um, is that that slimy, you know, layer that's on top of it, what it's actually doing is it's it's trying to rehydrate to heal a wound. Right? It thinks it's injured. Yeah. So when oxygen and liquid hit that, it starts to bubble, starts to get sticky, starts to get tacky, because what it does it wants to do is it wants to fill fill where it's supposed to be, where the air is meeting the moisture. Mm-hmm. So if you keep washing off that meat, it's gonna continually get sticky, get slimy. And then you cut more off and then you wash it. Guess what happens? Slimey gets sticky gets. And so when you let the meat dry out, that slime goes away. You could start to literally just wipe, dust the hair off. Um, and so there's so many like little tips and tricks that as hunters, we're not taught. And you're not watching this when you're watching carbon TV or whatever. You're watching this dude go out there and smack a big elk. And that's the end of the show. Yeah. Nobody wants to come, you know, watch a whole show of me sitting there going, well, this is why the meat gets slimy. There are people that want to, but it's not exciting. I mean, I work with a lot of companies. and They're like, well, can you show more animals dying? I'm like, no. <laughs> there's a million people out there showing animals get shot. I want to show you what to do once the animal gets shot. Because to me, there's there's 49% of, the, of hunting is before the, the, the trigger pull, mm-hmm. and then 49% of the hunt is after the trigger pull. And the trigger pull to me is just that 1% that sits in the middle, the 1% or 2% you know, that sits in the middle. Mm. And so there's a lot of people that show that other 49%. I want to be the guy that shows that other 50% on the other side um, because the the trigger pull to me is the least of important thing of it all. Like if I could get away from pulling the trigger as much as I love it, just process and have fun and get get the results of the animal, I would but I'm not the guy that has 10 grand to go have someone else shoot my deer. So I have to still pull the trigger, but I still feel that it's more important to understand the process of the animal, um, and, and educate yourself, just like you would sit there and read a gun and ammo magazine to, you know, to know the next round, sit and look at a deer anatomy book. I know it's boring at first, but once you understand the anatomy of a deer, you're going to become a way better hunter.
0: Oh yeah. Big time, big time. So are there any other mistakes you you see people make, or, um, I guess you could kind of see like those myths, like I think another one that I've kind of heard and, uh, seen, I mean, guiding, like I did, uh, you know, inevitably somebody would gut shoot a deer and, you know, obviously we try to get that out as quick as possible, but I remember there'd be a couple times, like if somebody would gut shoot a deer and, you know, like they're standing over your back, like watching you do this the whole time. And you know, obviously there's guts in there. You can't do anything about it. They freak out because a little bit might just touch the inside of the ham as you're trying to get that out or whatever. Uh, what's your take on that? Does that Have you seen that really affect, or is it just kind of like the hair deal, like, oh, just wash it off and get it clean as quick as possible?
1: Yeah. Uh, the guts itself, I'm not worried about the guts. What I'm worried about yeah. is the pisser. Yes. I'm more piss sack. Um, when you get guts, it hoses off real easy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: super easy. Um, I mean, we'll have guys gut shoot, shoot deer. And as long as we get the guts out fast enough. And a lot of times too, even if we're back in the sticks, like I have, like I'll, I'll take a water bottle, take my knife, poke an X in it so we can squirt it off and rub it off. Yeah. Uh, even, even taking grass, wiping grass off that. You got to think about that. That that's just the inside of the stomach contents, right? There's really, there's actually good bacteria in the stomach that's causing the breakdowns, right? Now, what happens is we allow that good bacteria to die off and the bad bacteria grow in. So we're going to wash it off and get rid of it. When you have the urine, the urine is very, very strong in ammonia. Um, and that, that ammonia is going to impact the flavor of meat way more so than, than gut shot. Um, and it's funny because the people that get gut shot deer, they still want to go in and grab out those tenderloins before they'll look at like the hams. Right. Mm-hmm. Got to get the, t- the best cut. Got to get the tenderloins, which are covered in stomach contents they don't think about that at all right they'll wash it off real quick I'm like okay but that is literally if you look at the makeup of a tenderloin it, it's very very porous right Yeah, it's absorb a lot more than that <laughs> that bottom round that is thick and has that cover of slime over it we were talking about mm-hmm. and has you know which is like a fascia right so it's got this fascia over it which again we can literally go right underneath that fascia cut that fascia off and it's clean um, so yeah, that's, that's a big one too. Um, is people saying, oh, it's got shot. So it's bad. Yeah. And I think no, not at all. You know, and it's, it's funny too, even with myths that come to like, well, this animal tastes bad, you know, or it tastes, you know, like can't, can't eat a wild hog cause it's going to taste bad. I've eaten some of the best wild, ho- I mean, wa- wild hog to me is one of the best flavors mm. especially when it's done correctly. Right. Uh, have Havelina javelina are some of my favorite animals to eat. Again, you have to learn the process of how to clean them, and I think that's the biggest mistake is everyone tries to treat every animal they shoot like a deer. Yeah, um, and it's it's not you know a bit, yes all four legged critters are set up the same, but they're all going to process a little different depending on what's inside, what's on the outside. You know where are the glands, where are the scents, where are the where do they breed? You know, mm. so once you figure out that then I think all your myths kind of go out the window because it's just, we've been taught it so long in this Western world that's, you know, or even like livers and hearts are gross. Bull crap. Um, I've cooked liver and I mean, I took to shot show this year, I took four pounds of heart jerky, literally jerky to heart. And people were going back. I mean, the bag was empty after like the first day of people Jeez. going back. They're like, this is not heart. I hate heart. I'm like, no, you hate how people open it up, pound it, and then like make a taco out of it. And it's rubbery and it's. That's what you hate. Yeah. You, again, the myth is it can be cooked one way, right? So I think that's where a lot of these mistakes come in is because that's what grandpa told them. That's what, you know, TV told them.
0: The old myths. The old myths. So, man, walk us through, we can get as detailed as we want on this, but let's, let's kind of go through just breaking down a deer real quick for some of the folks out there, you know, and I guess first and foremost, my question for you is, I've seen people when they hang a deer to begin skinning and quartering, I've seen people do it by hanging the deer uh, either by antlers. If it's a doe, they're hanging, you know, by the neck or they're upside down through the legs with either some type of gimbal or a hook system. So, or how are you hanging your deer upside down? Or I guess you could say forward up, like, and then just kind of walk us through it quickly.
1: Yeah. I think there's two methods on, gutting and skinning, right? One of them is going to be round. Yeah. If you're, if you're a Western hunter or you're an Eastern hunter, who's far away. Um, and that process is very, very simple, you know, belly up, gut it. And then when you're skinning, you're doing one side, flipping the animal over onto that hide that you just skinned to skin the other side out. Yeah. Break down those quarters. But for 80% of hunters out there, they're hanging meats, right? Um, if you're in Texas, you're, you're hanging in shed. If you're in Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky, all the way up to Michigan, you're bringing that deer home. I have buddies that are in South Carolina, and they're hanging deer on the on their kids' playground set. Right? <laughs> and it's true. I mean, it's
0: awesome. <laughs> well, guilty is <as> charged here.
1: <laughs> yeah, the kids swinging, and the dead deer is right next to the yeah. kids swinging. And so, for me, I don't think there's really a a plus or minus to hanging it one way or the other. Um, for me, I like to allow gravity to get as far away from the meat as possible. So I feel that if you are skinning from the antlers down, if you're hanging it from the head head down, what you have is you have a lot more meat that's going to be exposed to anything that's falling off. Mm -hmm. So you've got the legs that are sitting there. So if you do puncture urine, right, you now have that going all the way down to all the hams you know, those back legs are where 80% of your meat's coming off your ear, yeah. right? And so, plus it's also the way that the animal works. It's easier to pull the hide off from back to the front and work on it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot mm-hmm. easier to work on the neck and shoulders um, when they're hanging down and loose <laughs> because of the way that the animal is actually working. So, if you think of the way the animal runs, if I'm hanging it they're running and their arms are going forward, Yeah. Correct? So if I'm hanging it from its head, what we're actually doing is we're actually making the animal do what it's not naturally going to do, which is hang down and be tighter, right? Mm-hmm. So hanging from the head, you're hanging it down. The shoulders are tighter. They're going to be down more. The back legs are going to be tighter uh, along the ball joints. You're going to have the back straps, which are going to be tighter because they're used to being flat. Now what we're doing is we're making where all the weight is pulling down on them. Uh, the neck itself, the way that it's set up to be, is not set up to be strung that way. Yeah. And so flip it around and hang from the feet. What you're doing is you're actually allowing gravity to loosen all of the muscles Yeah. versus tighten all the muscles. You're allowing the shoulders to now be loose. So in there, and you can cut, you know, where the scapula blade sits overall on that little bit of fascia. You're allowed to, and even when gutting, right? So now what I can do is when I get gut it, I can cut the bunghole. I can make sure that that's free and clear. And then as soon as I start to gut that animal, if it's hanging up, what I actually can do is I can actually take that whole gut sack and lay it down on the front where they're still high.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I can work the diaphragm because, again, I'm working with gravity now, not against gravity. If I'm doing the other way, all those guts are actually going to want to sit down in the pelvic region cavity. And so by flipping that down, you're just allowing everything just to fall out. Yeah. Um, and there's If you go look at all the old um pick the cave paintings they're hanging feet down if you go look at all the old textbooks from the 13 1400s of how to butcher a cow a sheep a goat they're hanging from feet down so why are we going to sit there and you know for thousands of years this is how it's been done and say well we're going to hang it from the head you know
0: No, I definitely, I definitely got it. Uh, and I've even, heck, I've even experienced that myself in the past. I've tried it before by hanging by antlers and whatnot. And it was just a pain compared to when you just hang them by the rear leg. So it works a lot better that way. And so, you know, do you, are you the kind of guy that, uh, totally skin and are you trying to section out any meat while you're skinning? Because I think, I feel like that's another mistake that I feel like people do. I, I mean, I could be totally wrong here uh, and you call me out on it, but uh, I feel like I've seen people that they try and start sectioning and deboning before they even completely have the animal skinned. Uh, are you completely skinning before you even start doing anything else?
1: Yeah, I, I gut, then I skin cause I want to get the guts out as fast as possible. Right. There's guys, Oh, you got to skin it all. And then that's the guys that tell you like, but what happens if you hit something now you've got no you got no hair to protect.
0: And way more exposed meat.
1: Yeah. And so I am a I am 100% skin it all out and then start to process it. Because it even allows you to... Because, again, if you have somewhere to allow to hang that deer to start to dry out a little bit, mm-hmm. allow all that fascia we talked about that was slimy to dry, it's going to be a lot easier and a lot better butcher. So skin it out 100%.
0: Yeah. Are you... You know, you get it skinned, um, you know, obviously if it's too warm, you're trying to get it into a walk-in cooler as quick as possible if you can, if you have that capability or you're quartering and then getting it iced or cooled down as quick as possible. But, you know, once you've, once you've got it quartered or skinned um, and it's cool enough, do you like to let it hang so you get that, that drying out effect like you're talking about?
1: If you have the ability to, mm-hmm. heck yeah. <laughs> Most people don't have the ability to. Yeah. And so what I do from that next point is I take off the front shoulders. Yep. This is, this is my process. This is how I break down a deer in my <laughs> classes. This is how I teach it. Uh, and I tell everyone in my classes, there's no right way. There's no wrong way. There's just a way that I found works better for me. Um, and to get the most amount of meat off. So when you're hearing this and don't, don't come at either of us, don't come at me or well, be like, Oh my gosh, you're wrong. <laughs> Remember I've done 400 deer, my own deer. That's not including any other people's deer. It's not including classes. Through the struggle of doing this, and this has only been six years of me learning from the wrong way of doing it to finding out a way that gets the best as me, is when people come and do my process, they're like, that was easy. Um, so this is how I do it. You can take it for what it is. You can say F you and go do it your the way your grandpa taught you or the way you saw someone on TV do it. I don't really care as long as you do it yeah uh, and, and and do it to the best of your ability <clears throat> but for me this is my process I'll take off those front shoulders again those front shoulders are held on nothing but sinew um, and there's a little piece where the uh, scapula cartilage sits up underneath a little flap of steak that sits right where the shoulder blade meets the back strap and the neck okay mm-hmm. once you once you get rid of that scapula um it frees itself the the whole leg will come completely off Uh, and then i'll take those and i'll set those aside usually what you're doing is that's usually where people's shot placements are so this is your chance to free up any of your what i like to call undesirables uneatables so your ballistics damage uh from from round that's in there that's the big blood clots that's the big where it kind of exploded this is your chance to clean it off uh or if you're a bow hunter this is where you can sit, sit there and analyze your shot and see where you hit it, see where you did stuff and again clean out any of that blood wound. Yeah. Fast you get that blood that blood out of there and off of there. It's just like when you have a fish and get rid of that bloodline, it's going to taste better. <clears throat> so taking the time just to scrape off that blood and throw it away, don't let it sit. That's that's what that. Once the shoulders are off, now I now I have exposure to all of the back strap. I see a lot of people take the back strap off first. And they're cutting around their shoulder. And they're leaving it's just take off the shoulders. Now we can work on the back straps. Um, there's a couple ways you can get the back strap off. There's one where you can French out uh, your back straps, which is where you're leaving eight ribs attached um, to the back strap. So you mm-hmm. do your, your tomahawks or your French bones or anything like that, that. You would call it along that your rib roast. You'll hear it called a lot of times too. Uh, this is your prime rib cut. If you're thinking of uh, a this is your prime rib. Uh, which is where you're leaving on that bone. I, mean, I just posted a video of it today. I was
0: just um, about to say, I saw you posted doing that. I think uh, with beef or – I can't remember what you were doing with but basically you're going in and you cut that rib first before you begin to cut the backstrap out, correct?
1: Yeah. So what you're going to do is what you'll – between the where, the where the diaphragm sits on the last rib mm-hmm. and up all the way up to where your um, – where your, where your tenderloins sit underneath, right? About your t- underneath <laughs> up to where your back legs are. There's about a six, seven inch portion of back strap. It's the thickest cut of backstrap. strap. Um, this is where you'll get your T bone steaks or your Porter houses. If you're thinking about that out of that section, which you can do specialty cuts, they're easy to do and get little, little venison T bones, little elk T bones out of that portion. Where the rib starts, down, you, you count down eight ribs. So start at that very last rib where the diaphragm sits, count down eight ribs. You're going to go on the inside of the cavity, and you're going to cut. I use rose pruners. Mm-hmm. They work perfect on deer and elk. Or elk, usually you're not. You're kind of using like a hacksaw. Yeah, uh, They're just thicker bones. But anything that's smaller from your whitetail to your mule deer to your antelope, those rose pruners work brilliantly. <laughs> and you're cutting as close to the spine as you can down those eight bones and then you're going to cut off um however long of the the rib bone you want to keep attached usually i try to keep six to eight inches you'll cut that off and then what you'll do is then you'll go in and you'll cut the back strap down like you normally do along the spine okay then you kind of open it up and you'll be able to open it up and again if you want to look you know from fieldtoplate.com, i literally posted one today i saw it on, on, on how to do this because i had a bunch of people asking me and you go in and just take your knife and go right along and then you have Your backstrap attached to these bones, so you can do your lollipops. You know, you can cut them and have a little bone in. Uh, You can do a whole roast. And the reason we leave the bones on there, one, it helps with more even cooking Mm -hmm. because the bones are going to deflect the heat. Two, presentation. It's a way to get people who are not game eaters excited to eat something that they recognize. Yeah, recognize a tomahawk steak. They recognize a um, lamb chops. It's the same exact cut as a lamb chop. Uh, bone and pork chops, same cut. All these, I'm telling you, on this deer is the same cut on all those ones that we already know. So it's it becomes recognizable. And two, flavor. Anytime you can add that bone, that bone marrow when it's cooking, dripping out, it's gonna add flavor. Um, it's, gonna, it's gonna add an essence to the animal that's gonna in, in just highlight it. So you can take off that as one strip, or you can take off the whole back strap if you want to, and that's just where you cut along the spine, kind of. Peel it away, cut along. There's going to be a little pocket in the ribs where mm-hmm. it sits. You're just going to kind of carve out where that sits in there. You could take out the whole loin if you want to. Uh, once those are out, then I'll flip over onto the inside. And if I'm not doing T-bone steaks, if you're doing T-bone steaks, you have to leave the tenderloin on the inside in the cavity. Because it, for a lot of people that don't know, the tenderloin is actually your filet mignon. So if you're thinking in the terms of cattle, the tenderloin is your filet mignon. Yeah. And so for a T-bone, you have to have your New York and a filet. Your porter, it's just the same exact cut, just there's bigger aspects of when the animal goes smaller and bigger. On its, on its lower lumbar vertebrae which is where those are found. Okay. And so if you're doing T-bones, you leave that in and you kind of just cut off that whole section. And you let it chill, and then you can go in with your saw, your hacksaw down the middle, and then split between each one of those vertebrae. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Um, and then take off the bone and backstrap like we talked about. So now what you're sitting there is you're sitting there with your back straps gone, your front shoulders gone. This is where if you want to go and start picking around the rib bones to get off all the, all the meat and ribs, um, there is going to be a belly flap that kind of sits there. It's really, really full of a lot of tendons. A lot of guys will throw it away. Um, what I like to do is I take all the scrap that still has meat on it, but it has – silver skin, it has sinew, it has tendons, things yeah. that you just pick around. I make a pile of it. I'll tell you why in a minute.
0: Okay. I was about to ask if what you do with some stuff yeah. like
1: that. So I get it. Yeah. So I get a bucket and I throw all that in a bucket, right? I'm, I, on, a, on an average deer, I'm only having about a pound and a half of waste minus bones, wow. which is nothing. If you think about it in the term of what people tell you, you only get 49%, whatever. Um, and so I'll take all those, and I'll throw it into a bucket. Mm-hmm. And, and now I've, now I've got this animal hanging there pretty much picked down from the you know, the lower lumbar vertebrae where the, where the hip bone starts up. It still has all the meat. Pretty much clean all the way down to where the neck is now. So the neck, there's two ways to do this. A lot of places with CWD, you can't leave any bones from where the spinal cord and head attached. So what I like to do is just debone out that neck roast. In the neck, you're going to see a lot of stuff. All right, there's going to be a lot of white sinew, a lot of white tendons, a lot. And it freaks a lot of people out because they're like, oh, I got to go clean that out. Don't worry about it. Just cut off all the neck meat in one big chunk. If it's a bigger deer or an elk, they're going to have what's called, uh, like, we well, like to call them throat tenders. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It looks just like you would get a tenderloin in the middle. They're beautiful, beautiful cuts of meat. Pull those off. You got two of those as well. And then, so now you've got the neck. Usually the head's still attached because I'm not the guy that likes to. I like the weight pulling down still, right? So I leave that head still, and if I lop off the head, then everything's still flopping all around. I got that weight of those horns or that mm-hmm. doe. Um, so then what I'll do is then I'll separate the head. I don't get loppers. I go to the, where the last uh, cervical uh, vertebrae meets the inside of the skull. So if you look at this deer right here, I don't know if anyone's watching, the vertebrae is going to go in there right on the side. That's where the last vertebrae is going to sit. What I do is I go to the top of the skull, go down, and this is literally is just sitting there with just a little bit of um. um there we go. Stay just like that. <laughs> um, there's gonna be a little bit of cartilage and stuff that's that's holding that spine to the head. Right. Once that the head falls free, don't get loppers. Don't go in there and cut. You still gotta pull that off, right? Uh, and now you've got that whole section that's beautiful and cut. Then I go all the way up and I'll do the same thing. I'll find that vertebrae that attaches to the pelvic bone and I'll get my knife in there and I'll bend it up and I'll cut it and then I'll just twist it, pops right off. Now I've got those two back legs sitting there beautifully. Mm -hmm. You'll see some guys that will start to break out the muscle groups while it's hanging, uh, which is fine. You can do that. But for me, I like to get more precise, exact cuts. Um, So what I'll do is I'll take one of those legs off hanging still have one leg hanging up and again now i'm allowing gravity to do what's supposed to do nope um i'll cut along the back there's a little what's called an h bone that sits inside where the pelvic bone is so if you think about the pelvic bone that's going to have think of it looking looking like an h it's going to have like come up like this right like a fancy h um and it's actually called an h bone so you cut around those and then you can pull the leg down cut right there and there's the ball joint um sitting Every time there's a joint in your deer, there's gonna be a triangle. Okay. So don't start hacking around. Look at the look at the leg itself, and you'll be able to actually see a triangle. And right where that triangle is, that's where your ball joint's gonna be. Okay. Uh, it's insane. It's, it's so cool once you finally you're like, oh yeah, there it is, right? Illuminati. And <laughs> and so once you see that, then you cut the ball joint and the whole leg will just come off and you'll have your other one. You take that. And I leave that hanging, and then I grab the pelvic bone, put my hand inside the pelvic bone, and do the same exact thing, just reverse, pull down using that gravity. And now I've got the entire animal quartered out, sectioned out, um, and it doesn't take very long at all. And now from here, you can put it in your ice chest, right? If you are putting in an ice chest to travel, I recommend not letting the meat touch the ice. Yeah. Um, so putting it in trash bags, putting it in non-scented
0: trash bags, right? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, you don't want to. You're like, why does this smell like lavender? <laughs> um, so what I tell a lot of guys to do is actually to take um, the ice, put it on the bottom, and then even if they take a piece of cardboard, put a piece of cardboard on top of there, and then lay all the meat on top of the cardboard, or lay all the meat on t- or put just a black trash bag, unscented black trash bag.
0: Yeah,
1: all the meat over that, it's gonna, it's gonna keep everything ice cold, everything chilled, without it actually touching. Because once your meat hits the water, it's gonna start to turn gray. It's gonna start to suck out all the essence of what that meat actually is mm-hmm. and meat itself is a sponge. So if you think of a sponge, you know, like a just your yellow sponge in your kitchen, right? With the, with a little green bristle top. Um, if you were to squeeze everything out of that sponge and then put it back into dirty water, what happens to that sponge is it now soaks all that stuff back up there. So people are like, Oh, well, I bleed out my deer. I bleed. No, you're, you're bleeding out flavor and you're introducing negative flavor back into your deer. Yeah. So, um, make sure it's not touching ice if you're traveling. For me, it's usually then I start to vacuum seal it and then throw it on to throw it in there because then I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be there forever and I don't have to worry about any water hitting it. From there, then I take my individual cuts yeah. and start watering eggs and all that good
0: stuff. Yeah, that's when you start. That's when you get it back to the kitchen, you debone and you get it all sectioned out in your different groups of meat and steaks and what you're going to do with it right.
1: Yeah, so if you're looking... <laughs> If you're looking at a back leg i always tell everyone i said god gave you a road map just follow the white lines so every every steak if you look at a back leg um every section of that back leg is going to have line yeah where that meat is if you follow that line that whole entire roast steak will come off oh big time um and so if you go in there and start hacking you, you can you can, again it's just another meatball hack at it all you want you'll grind it you'll be fine mm-hmm. uh, But if you actually want that top round, that bottom round, that sirloin, that sirloin tip, that eye of round, all those beautiful cuts that that we're used to, if you literally just follow those white lines, every stake is going to come off. This includes the shoulder. Shoulder's got white lines, but if you follow the scapula blade, you take off the shoulder blade stake. You take off the other side, you can take off the, 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 the top blade stake, right? So all these parts literally just fall into place when you actually look at the muscle group itself.
0: That's, what I, that's probably my most uh, – uh, I get lost in that whenever I start deboning because I just like pulling all those different sections of meat. So that's like one of my favorite parts. But w- what I want to talk about real quick is what are you doing with that bucket that it's not necessarily waste? You kind of brought this up a minute ago, but tell us about that bucket.
1: Yeah, so what I do with all of the scraps, right? So the scraps are still full of meat. I learned this from an old-timer is there's a lot of meat that's that's left on there. Mm So sort of like when you would take a chicken carcass and throw it in and boil it and pull off all the extra parts of meat. Yep. So what I actually do is I will actually take that and I'll actually slow cook that entire bucket. Um, So I'll put it in a crock pot with a can of beer, some veggies or whatever, just some sort of liquid that goes into that crock pot. And what you're doing is you're allowing all of that sinew, all that sinew that's on there, it's going to turn rubbery. And you can actually just pull the meat off of all that and get rid of all that like sticky rubbery and you'll be, be left with it. So I had a five gallon bucket full of scraps and this guy didn't believe me. And so I took, I just took a crock pot through all that five pounds and it stuffed it into there, right? And let it just slow cook, kept adding liquid, kept breaking it down. We ended up, we ended up getting another four and a half pounds of meat just off the scraps that we used for tacos, that we used for tamales, that we used for, that we used for stews, that we used for, stews, that we used for which is a waste of people are going into, but take, you know, you, you cut off your back strap, silver skin. Yeah. And there's, and there's the meat still left on it. And you usually you just take that, throw it, throw it, throw it in the bucket. Ooh. So there, there's another buddy of mine that takes all of that and pressure cooks it. So, cause he doesn't want to wait very long, mm-hmm. put liquid in there. He'll pressure cook it. And same thing. It all just kind of falls apart and it gets shredded. And it's, it's gorgeous. And the same thing goes with like your neck meat. A lot of guys don't know what to do with the neck, right? For me, I I wrap my neck meat and make it like a roast. So you can slow cook it. When you slow cook it, all those little junk that's on the inside breaks down.
0: Yeah.
1: And it becomes just fork tender delicious. Um, For Hispanic culture, their favorite thing to do with the neck meat is make tamales out of it. God, that sounds so good right now. (laughs) Oh, so that's literally what I do. I take neck meats and I make neck meat tamales. Um, But what I'll do is I'll take a bunch of different peppers and chilies, and I'll, I'll get a big stock pot, throw in a couple neck roasts, Throwing all those spices, all the onions and garlics, and you know, you name any, anything I want to throw in there, and I let that cook down until it's just falling apart, shredding, just like you would pulled, pulled pork.
0: Yeah,
1: and utilize that in so many different ways. And then I'll vacuum seal it like that. I'll vacuum seal it in one pound little bags, and then it's like, oh hey, we're having, um, you know, tacos tonight. I'll pull out that neck meat. I'll take it out. I'll put it in a skillet. Add a little liquid. Put some seasonings in it. Then we'll have tacos and you know deer neck tacos, Uh, or like hey Christmas time's coming up and I've got thirty pounds of this neck meat that I have done. Then we'll make tamales out of it and we'll hand it out for Christmas time. We'll make deer neck tamales and so I think people get so caught up in the basics, right? You gotta have, you gotta eat a backstrap like a backstrap. You gotta cook it, you gotta slice it. Mm, You gotta
0: fry it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, you gotta or you gotta slice it and pound it and fry it and put put it with gravy and. I think the biggest thing for from field to plate, and who I am, is is utilizing meat. As mm-hmm. I, I get so many comments a day, like, "Hey, what can I do with this?" And I was like, "Well, what's your favorite blank recipe?" Oh, I love doing this. Okay, then do that with your deer. But I can do that with my deer. Yes. Anything you can do with it with, with a cow, you can do with a deer. Anything you can do with a chicken, do with a pheasant or a quail or a duck or whatever, right? Yeah. And once you get past the, the thought of being scared, try it. You're going to be blown away with, you know, some of my top recipes on my page are the most basic, easy, dumbest recipes. You know, that people on fromfield playcom are like, oh, this is, you know, like one of them got pinned like 10,000 times last month. And it's like, it's just literally, it's just like tacos. But people are excited because it's something, it's a different way to do tacos. It's yeah. not just the ground meat, you know, but burger recipes, you know, th- think of wild turkey, it's not just a turkey breast. I can't tell you how many times turkey legs and thighs are way more better than...
0: Oh, so good. So good.
1: You add up all these different aspects of it, and you really start to look at the animal for who it is, you know. Even on a deer, taking off the little cheek meat mm-hmm. on... A, on. A, like, people make fun of me because I skin the, the whole animal out, even including the head, before I start pro- processing. And... They're like, why'd you do that? I'm like, well, because look at all the meat that's on here and all the meat that's back here and all the meat that they're like, yeah, but that's, I go, that all adds up to me. That's five more meatballs in a meatball sub, yeah. And that's how I look at the animals is I look at it as food and respect. And I think a lot of people are just like, oh, okay, it's back straps, it's back legs, it's front shoulders, that's it. And so,
0: see, and, and what you just said is what I'm really hoping that people will get from this podcast is. It's not just your legs. It's not just backstrap and tenderloins. I'm hoping that what they can take just from you, just from you breaking down the process of how you go through a deer, it makes you think ahead of time about what everything can get used for and utilized for rather than just taking those uh, essential pieces of the deer, if you will, and then just discarding everything else.
1: Yeah. And for me, one of the things that really, got me excited about it is i started reading a lot of different books a lot of old butcher books a lot of old medical journals mm-hmm. like one was like lewis and clark's medical journal and in there they were talking about how they were all getting sick from scurvy on the trip right because they didn't have any citrus they didn't have any it was winter and yeah. they come up they come up to the indians and they're like well why aren't you guys getting sick and dying like we don't know but we'll tell you what we eat not to look like you <laughs> So what they started looking at is looking at like internal organs, looking at um, adrenal glands in an elk. You know that an adrenal gland in an elk has more, it's just a little gland that sits on top of the kidneys, mm-hmm. has has more vitamin C than like 10 oranges.
0: What?
1: And so you can actually get everything you need from an animal. You can get your vitamin C, you can get your zinc, you can get your iron, you can get your vitamin B. You when you start to look at the animal as a whole and what it does, you can make candles from the fat. Like an animal is way more than just a head on a wall and a couple stakes for your friends. Yeah. To look at the animal itself as this ultimate resource is how my mind has started to look at it. Um, so much so that like I'll even take like sinew from the leg muscles and save it because a buddy of mine, you know, he's building his own bow. And so we're wrapping all these parts of his arrows with this fresh sinew that we dried on a deer. Dang. Right. That's what the Indians did. And so it's like, no, I'm not telling everyone to go sit there because everyone's like, that's just insane, Jeremiah. <laughs> but, but you know, there's a lady that came to one of my classes and she was on wow. the verge of becoming a vegan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Saw one of my classes in uh, Outdoor Life magazine. <clears throat> so she came to this class and so she was asking me what you can do with d- all the different fats on a deer. And it's like, well, deer fat really isn't good to eat because it's very, very waxy. Right? Yeah. You know, it's a very tallowy, waxy type feel. I go, but Native Americans used to use it to waterproof their boots, waterproof their teepees. And I start, you know, so I grab a whole hunk off one of the back legs and I start rubbing it on my boot. I pour water on it and water kind of beats off. She's like, that's insane. I said, they used to also render it down and make candles out of it. Well, that got her a little hippie, but all excited, right? And so she she literally cut every ounce of fat off everybody's deer that was hanging up. Well, she made all of us. Peppermint scented candles for Christmas with just deer fat, and it's one of the coolest things to have this candle that smells like peppermint when you're burning it, and it's made 100 from from deer fat, and it you know when it renders down, it's got kind of that deer essence with a little bit. It's it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, and it's crazy to think about all the different fun things you can do, and even even with the insides of the animal. Like people make fun of me all the time when I bust out the kidneys and the heart and the liver. And, you know, I save the esophagus for my dogs. I'll take a bunch of esophagus, I'll throw them on the smoker until they're dry. My dogs freaking go nuts over them. Do you know how much a little two ounce, a little two inch piece of beef esophagus is at like a high end pet store for your dog?
0: Uh
1: uh-uh. uh. $30 for two inches. And what, I sit here.
0: What's the benefit behind that for your dog? Is it like a rawhide or what?
1: Yeah, it's just like a, it's a, it's a rawhide chew toy for your dog. And oh, the shit. benefits are all the things that go into that animal. So th- not only are they getting like their vitamins and minerals from what the animal eat out of this. Right. But they are, it's a, it's a, it's a chew toy. It's something you're not throwing in the gut pile mm. and it doesn't take any work. I don't clean it. I don't do anything. I literally take the, the entire trachea and esophagus out of the deer. So it's that long, right? It's yeah. a foot long. And I throw them, I throw we shot 18 deer a couple weeks ago and I took all 18 and I literally just threw them on the smoker until they were dry they dry and they kind of harden um and when i got a couple in my freezer right now that i need to smoke this next trip and then when, just as it when my dog does something good we come back from a duck hunt or something i give him one of those it's like an energy boost for him um just like us eating like, like taking a protein shake um and he loves it because it's just a chew toy right it's just it's a rawhide it's a it's a bully stick it's whatever you want to call it um and it's not a bone. It's not going to make a big mess. He eats all of it. And so you can look at all these different things of an animal that we just waste, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, even so much so that we were with a group of Hispanic people down in Mexico and we shot a brocket deer, which is like a little itty bitty deer. And they took the stomach, they cleaned the stomach and they made us, you know, tripe soup out of it, you know?
0: Yeah, menudo.
1: Yeah, and we're eating this and we're going, why are we eating deer stomach? Why Why aren't we all eating deer stomach? Right. Because it's it's you it's gross it takes a lot of time to clean. We were antelope punning, and I was like, I really want to make bre- sage breakfast sausage, but I don't want to buy casing, so I'm going to teach myself how to take the large intestine of the, this antelope, clean it so that because if you you know if you think about it, if you're stuffing sausages you're using natural hog casings right yeah. So I took the guts, squeezed all the crap out of the thing, rinsed it, cleaned it, salted it. We made breakfast sausage, and it was some of the best. Best breakfast sausage. Now again, I'm not telling everyone to do it because it was a pain in the butt and it was a disgusting mm-hmm. process. But it's doable. And yep. it's there. And it's gorgeous. And it's you know, like I don't know if you know that that show alone, right?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Every time I watch that, it pisses me off with what I watch them like when they're like when they get a fish and they're like, oh, okay, just or they get a deer and they like throw the stuff. I'm like, you know how much you guys just wait, like just by putting those bones into a broth. And drinking it, you're going to get way more nutrients and minerals and fat and calories than you are by eating that steak. That's going to, you know, like, but again, that's just me being the guy who reads every book because I want to treat that animal with as much respect as, because I mean, these these heads are awesome, but at the end of the day, yeah. it's just a head on the wall.
0: Yeah, that's, that's all they're going to do. I got some here myself. Yeah. So tell me about this class that you do, you know, is... Do you do multiple classes throughout the year or tell us about that? Cause I'm actually interested in this myself.
1: Yeah. You ought to come to it. Yeah. So every year I try to do two deer classes
0: mm-hmm.
1: where it's does only because I don't want people arguing and fighting over who shot a bigger buck. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, it's about the meat, not about the head. Right. Yeah. And it's a, and a doe is a doe. I've never had someone go, Oh my gosh, your doe weighs two pounds more than mine. No, a doe is a doe. Meat, and meat, and so what it is, it's a it's a four day class. Uh, you show up, and even if you've never touched a gun before in your life, don't worry about it. Uh, there's the, the, this class is meant for you. I, I in the same class as I've had a lady who had never touched a firearm, mm-hmm. and a guy that went and hunted in Africa, and they're in the same exact class, learning the same process. Um, and then what I what I've been talking about today is what we teach you. So we all go out, we all shoot it. There's a whole gutting, skinning class, and everything's hands on. Like you do your animal, I'm there to help you and encourage you, but you do your animal. Um, and then we go through the whole breakdown process, all the specialty cuts, and then you learn how to process, you learn how to cook, you learn it. It's a four-day all-inclusive. Like you come to be better at being self-sufficient on your deer. Um, so I do two of those classes a year. This year, I just uh, signed with for next season with a duck uh, out, like a duck outfitter. Sweet. We're- we're going to do a waterfowl class so that's coming come and learn how to put out a spread how to use a duck call how to command a dog uh then we're going to duck hunt and you're gonna come back you're gonna learn how to pluck how to skin how to gut how to quarter out and how to cook your your waterfowl make you so you're not you're not just pressing now uh also talk to a turkey outfitter for next season we're gonna do a turkey class so again come learn how to set up a spread learn how to call learn you know, learn how to sign scraping and all this stuff. And then we're going to turkey hunt. Same deal. You're going to learn how to process that turkey down for class. And then I've got a guy, I've done it with Access. I've done it with Audab. We've done it with a bunch of other things. But the goal is for this next year is to have more opportunities for people to get excited about doing it. And like I said, in six years, I've taken out 400 adults. That's not including kids, it's not, that's 400 adults that have come through just deer classes alone. Um, to learn how to do it. And it's amazing when I get text messages daily from them saying, hey, look what I did. Look what I did on my own. Hey, because of this, or I'll get a FaceTime. Hey, I forgot how to do this cut. Can you walk me through this? Um, and it's it's so awesome and empowering. Uh, I was walking around SHOT Show, and this one guy stopped me uh, with this one company. He goes, you're Jeremiah with from Field to Plate, right? And I go, yes, sir. He goes, so I've been following you for a long time, really kind of you know, excited about you. So I got my daughter and a bunch of her friends and their moms, and we did a from field to plate style class at our ranch. We start showing me all these pictures. Like to me, that is what this is all about. Because freaking sweet. Because ten years ago, I was the guy who was sitting in a field, pissed off that I didn't know what I was doing. Fast forward is now people are teaching classes the way that I taught classes, mm-hmm. and it's funny to see see on social media how many people are coming out like, "Oh, we have a new hunt class coming up." It's like. Welcome. I started that. Enjoy it. You know, like, and they're trying to throw it on their own. But again, it's not. I've had people go through. They're like, it's not the same because again, theirs isn't as hands-on. It's like, hey, watch me shoot this pig. Watch me show you how to butcher it. And I'm more of the mentality of getting dirty for your dinner. Yeah. And if you're and if you're not getting dirty for your dinner, then why are you even eating dinner? You know?
0: Absolutely. Well, man, where I know we're running out of time here, but where can everybody find all of this on your website? Give us your social media handles. Where can we find you?
1: Yeah, it's pretty easy from field to plate T O plate, um, on everything. And I've got a really cool group, uh, public group or it's private group now. Cause I've had a bunch of idiots come in and try to delete it, but <clears throat> on Facebook that you can join and it's all based on food. Um, so, you can go there and show it. If you, if you show hunting pictures, it has, it's got to include food. Mm-hmm. But there's 1,500 people – or yeah, 15,000 people on there now. Wow. That you can get on there, and it's food daily, and it's encouraging to see other people. Excited about it. Uh, from field to plate on Instagram, you can go there. I post tons of reels and videos uh, and lives on how to do processing that I'm talking about. Sweet. Uh, from, from field to plate on um, – YouTube YouTube channel is kind of there but not too much on it just because the demonetizing on everything yeah I'm working on putting everything on my website which is from field you can go there I have hundreds of free recipes I don't charge for anything uh, because I make companies charge so that you can get everything for free I think that's the way it needs to be just like everyone's like subscription based like oh follow me on Instagram pay 499 a month you can get cool content nope you get cool content with me just by hanging out and talking. I also run all my stuff so, and I have 100% answer rate on all direct messages. So if you have a question, comment, concern, reach out. I'm gonna answer it. Heck yeah, if, brother. I, if I don't know the answer, I know a lot of people in the industry that do know the answer and so I will find it out for you. And then sign up for a class. Um, the next one's hopefully, I'm gonna post it here in May. The dates, they usually sell out within a day to two days. Mm-hmm. But it's, it takes place in West Texas. The prices are all inclusive and it's pretty reasonable. Um, I think it's like thirteen hundred bucks for four days worth of hunting. It's not bad. I try to keep it as low as I can. Just pay the ranch, um, food and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and then pay me to be out there hanging out. But I don't want to be these guys that are charging you six, seven thousand dollars because I want you to be able to afford to be able to go out and do it. Um, so, and you go home with meat. And processed meat, vacuum sealed meat, ready to go home. Heck so yeah. cut out the middle, you know, cut out the middle man is kind of the whole process behind it. So heck yeah, yeah, man. Come hang out, come talk. And then I also have a podcast also from Field to Plate, the podcast, you can just tell Alexa it's on all streaming services. And uh yeah.
0: Well, heck yeah, man. Well, dude, I really appreciate your time this morning hopping on the podcast with me, talking deer, breaking down deer, other animals, and I learned a lot today. So, man, just thanks again for your time.
1: Yes, sir, anytime. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
0: You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.